Our scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 27. I skipped over a lot of it that we're not going to read. I will mention it, though. But I want to get to the, the heart of the passage where my message is derived from. And that's the section that we're going to read. And we'll touch on the other parts of the chapter. But we're going to look at the chapter as a whole, but concentrate on this section that we're going to read this morning. Starting on verse 20 of Acts chapter 27. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, let not, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Father, We have great opportunities to live out the Christian life in front of other people in the midst of storms, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of circumstances that are out of our control, that you as the sovereign God permit and allow into our lives Because we live in a broken world, we live in a fallen world, we live in a sin-cursed world. God, in many of the calamities, God, they're self-inflicted. Some of them, God, are by your sovereign decrees. And some of them are because this creation is not as you intended it to be. And Father, our hope is that you are going to redeem all of creation, all of our brokenness, all of our fallenness, all of our sinfulness. And we believe the scripture that it will be just as you told us. Father, help us to glean from this passage how we can minister just through our lives with the people around us in a fallen world. Open our eyes to this truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, I didn't finish last week's sermon, so I might just do a quick wrap-up and a quick review um, of last week. As you remember, it was sort of an apologetics on our defenses for the faith, and one of the things that Paul started out with, why do you think it's incredible that God would raise the dead? God can certainly do miracles. God created the divine order. God created the sun, the moon, the stars. God created the seas. 
and he can intervene anytime he so chooses. The laws of nature themselves declare to us an orderly, powerful God. So if an orderly, powerful God can create this universe out of nothing, it's not too hard for Jesus to turn some jugs of water for cleansing into wine for a marriage feast. It's not too hard for Jesus, who spoke this universe out of nothing, to speak into somebody's life and give them peace either, is it? So that was our first argument. The second argument is the moral argument. Men should repent. We all know that there's objective moral values. We all know that there's moral objective, objective duties, and we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Therefore, that argument that everyone knows in our conscience that somebody else has done a wrong to us, we're going to be judged by that standard because we all know the, or, the moral argument is true. The third argument for the Christian faith is the scriptures. 270 scriptures prophesied about Jesus thousands of years, 2,000 years, 400 years before he ever existed. One of the arguments is that Jesus orchestrated his life so that he could fulfill prophecies. And people love to point to the example, well, he knew that there was a prophecy about him riding in on a donkey, so he ordered them to, to get the donkey so he could fulfill the prophecy. But even more amazing, he knew before he was born that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, so he told, you know, where I, <laughs> he knew that after he was dead that they were going to bury him in a rich man's tomb. He, he somehow orchestrated that. And when he's hanging on the cross, he kind of figured out how they were going to stick a side spear in his side too, you know, so he, I guess, you know, orchestrated those as well. But anyway, you can see how ridiculous that argument is. So fulfilled prophecies is another strong evidence that points to Jesus Christ and the authority of the gospel. The resurrection of Christ, indisputable resurrection evidence. The early accounts of the resurrection, we can trace it all the way back to nearly a year after. Well, technically we can go to three days, right? <laughs> three days after, multiple eyewitnesses, multiple groups. So it wasn't a hallucination, and it wasn't mythology. Um, women were the first ones to report that the resurrection was a historical fact, and that would have never been included in the Gospels. Sorry, ladies, but you weren't looked on too good <laughs> in the New Testament era. Thank God for the Apostle Paul, though. He was not a male chauvinist. The Apostle Paul said, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Isn't that amazing? He wrote that during the Roman Empire. Uh, so these, these Bible attackers who say, well, you know, the Bible's anti-woman, women. No, it's, it elevates women to the lofty role that God designed for you. And that men and husbands are to reverence and respect and to love and to cherish their wives in the same manner that Jesus, I'm running on a rabbit trail, but men, just listen to this right now. This is the way you're supposed to treat your wives. Okay, guys? You nod your heads. You're listening. Okay. <laughs> um, so women were the first eyewitness reports. The, the, the apostles, uh, they had to be convinced of the resurrection. They didn't even believe it. And they were going to start this gospel message about Christianity, and they portrayed themselves as cowards in an upper room, fearful for their lives, when council members who actually condemned him go and retrieve the body of Jesus. That would have never been included. But yet the Bible tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a council member who was a disciple, a devout man waiting for the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus who came to Jesus as a coward at night, the first time he meets Jesus, says, I'm no longer a coward. I'm a public disciple of Jesus. Do with me what you will. Cast me out of the synagogue because I esteem the treasures of Christ 
greater than the riches of this world. It's exactly what Moses said. He says, I don't want to be the son of Pharaoh anymore. I want to identify with God's people. And that's what Nicodemus, in essence, did. So those are evidence for the resurrection. But the last argument that I didn't get to, Paul says to Agrippa, he says, this thing wasn't done in a corner. What he meant by that is that the entire Roman Empire knows about this historical event. Now, how did that happen? Jesus was crucified on Passover. People from the entire Roman world, the Jews' diaspora, had been everywhere. Alexandria, Egypt, Parthia, Medes, Elamites, Cretans, people from Rome had come to the Passover and they had witnessed the crucifixion. Fifty days later, they come back for the Feast of Pentecost. Again, the city of Jerusalem is bustling with strangers from all over the Roman Empire. And 12 men get up and start speaking in languages that they've never learned, and everyone hears about the praises of God, and the resurrection is preached, and 3,000 people are converted to Christianity. This thing was not done in a corner, Agrippa. This was done under the eyes of the Roman Empire. Pontius Pilate, who's the one who decreed Jesus' death, was a well-known Roman prefect. He had ordered Roman guards to stand sentry around the tomb. He had put a Roman seal on the tomb. This thing was not done in a corner. And so that was the last argument that Paul had, that this is well-known public knowledge done before the scrutiny of the most powerful empire of the universe. It was well-known. So with all that said, we're going to get into chapter 27 now. Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, you have no right to try me under Jewish law. I have not blasphemed. I'm simply believing in the hope that even our own forefathers believe in. I'm accepting the scriptures that you Pharisees even believe in. And I've not desecrated this temple. I've not brought any Greeks into this temple. Every charge that you've brought against me is false. And I will not be tried back in the city of Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul is exercising his rights as a Roman citizen to have this case brought before uh, Caesar. So this is where we're at in chapter 27. The first few uh, paragraphs really just sort of give a, a journal of his travel. And it's inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And it's good to know where Paul went. And it's good that Luke did this because it authenticates Luke's accuracy it authenticates that Luke was an eyewitness account of all of this, and it gives credibility to the New Testament because every one of these cities have been discovered, if they're not already practical living cities today. The port of Phoenix, where they wanted to go to, they have found, archaeologists have discovered that port. It opens up both to the northeast and to the uh, southwest and the northeast, and so it was a great place for to, to winter. The port of Fair Havens has been found by archaeologists. All these cities are still either existing cities or they've been discovered. So we know that Luke was an accurate historian. In fact, Sir Walter Ramsey was converted to Christianity as an archaeologist and he used the book of Acts as his source book. And he said, if Luke is this concerned about the details of every little city and that there were polytarchs in, in charge of that city, and that Gallio was the governor of the city of Corinth, 
in 52 AD that if he was that meticulous about every one of those details, I can trust him on the spiritual reliability of this book. And he converted to Christianity. Um, so with all that said, the trip is now in, in, in earnest. They've left and they're heading to Rome. And Paul knows that the Passover, I'm sorry, the Day of Atonement is over. The Day of Atonement is the last week of September, the 1st of October. And Paul knows that this is not a season to be out on the open seas. That storms come with regularity, and they are powerful storms. And he gives the advice, it is not a good idea to be out sailing. Now, I don't think Paul had some kind of vision. I don't think he had any kind of spiritual insight that this trip is going to end in disaster. I think Paul is just using good old common horse sense. You know, this is just not a good idea. And I think sometimes God has just given us common sense. We ought to listen to it. And that's what Paul is exercising here. And they say, nah, this isn't a good spot, man. We don't like the, uh, the amenities. You know, we don't have room service here. Whatever it was, they didn't like that port. There's a better port just on the other side of the island. If we can get around there. And Paul says, we don't want to take that chance. We don't want to get out in an open sea this time of year. We don't know what's going to happen. And they don't listen to Paul. And so we'll pick it up in verse 11. He says, I perceive that this voyage is going to end with disaster and much loss, not only the cargo of the ship, but our also our own lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than those things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail, and if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest to winter there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete, and along came a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when we had taken on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground by the citrus sands. They struck sail and were so driven. And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with, all their, with their own hands. Boy, things are getting desperate, aren't they? And now as a mariner, these guys have no clue of where they're at. What do you use to guide yourself? I know when I got lost in the U.S., I was never lost, Ron. I knew exactly where I was at. <laughs> Just, but when I had my, my map and my compass, the sun is the only thing that told me I was off the trail. I looked at that sun and I said, whew, I am going the wrong direction. And if I knew how to look at the stars, I could get up at night and look at the stars. Well, if you're a mariner, those are the things that you use and these guys have been out on the sea now, and they have not seen the sun. They've not seen the stars. These guys have no clue of where they're at. The Mediterranean is a big place to be lost in. So are the Uinta Mountains, by the way. <laughs> you feel nature is big. I remember the first time 
I knew, well, I knew this a long time ago, but I remember when I flew over the state of Alaska, I said, how can anyone not believe in God? The vastness, the beauty, the magnitude of the mountains, the grandeur. A Big Bang? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> this world is so immense. And we are so little and so insignificant, aren't we? And that's the way these guys are feeling right now. We are out of control. This situation is out of control. And as we're looking at it, these guys were trying desperately to control their own situation, weren't they? They were girding everything down. They were chucking stuff overboard. They were, I don't know what mariners do, batting the hand mast and whatever else they were doing. <laughs> but buddy, they were after it. And that's the way people do. That's the way we all should do. And Paul, in this chapter, has an incredible opportunity to minister to them because here is a Christian who is right in the storm with them. God never promises us that we're going to be exempt from storms, does he? Jesus said this in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 7. He says, He who hears my word and does my word, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, because what comes? The rains come. The winds blow. The floods rise up. And the house stands because it's on the rock. The foolish man, he hears the word of God, and he, the same circumstances happen to him, don't they? God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. God lets the sun rise on the just and the unjust. We are not exempt from difficulties in this life because you're a follower of Jesus. And if that's why you're following Jesus, you're following a false gospel, right? You've come to Christ because you're a lost sinner that needed a Savior. We're going to have the same problems, the same difficulties, but we can live right in the midst of it with a totally different perspective. What an opportunity that is for ministry for you and I. We might not like the things that happen to us, they might be difficult, but God places us in that amongst other people so we can let our light shine among men. Your life is your greatest tool for ministry. Now, we've got a real twisted idea of what ministry is, don't we? We think of ministry as a title. And Brother Rick over here, he's one of the first ones to say, you know what? I don't need a title to do ministry. You just tell me what to do and I'll do it. That's the kind of people we need in our church. I don't want a title. I don't need a title. Don't give me some kind of name because that's not ministry. If you're waiting for somebody in this church to give you a title to do something, it'll probably never happen because I'm not very good at that anyway. But, but the, the beautiful thing is I look around and I see this church family and I see ministry taking place every week. Every week. And it's different people doing different things, and you are ministering, not because you got a title, not because you said, you know, I checked this off and now my ministry is done. Ministry happens 24-7 for every child of God. We are engaged in ministry all the time, and we need to be prepared to minister to people. And Paul's ministry to give the gospel to Gentiles 
doesn't just happen when he walks into the synagogue and there's Gentiles there. It doesn't just happen when Felix and Festus and Agrippa say, Paul, give us your testimony. No, his ministry is right here in the middle of the storm. And you know who he gets to minister to? 273 unbelievers. Isn't that marvelous, Dennis? Wouldn't you like to be on a ship with 273 unsaved guys and you get to be a Christian in the middle of the storm and say, guys, don't sweat it. My God is with me. I believe my God. I've got a personal God and my God gives me promises. Well, tell me all about your God. Did you know that this is how John Wesley was converted to Christianity? Read his testimony. He was going to be a missionary to the American Indians when he first got saved. And him and his brother got on a ship and they got caught in a storm. It was horrific. And he didn't know if he was really a child of God or not. And he looked over and there was a group of guys called the Moravian Brethren. And they're just having a worship time. Lord, take us home. Hallelujah. We're going to let this ship sink. We get to see Jesus. And John Wesley's saying, what are you guys praying for? No, no, no. I'm not so sure about this situation. And he grappled with his own assurance of salvation because he was on a ship in the midst of a storm with some people that knew that they belonged to Jesus. And Paul is on this ship with 273 guys. And I'm just kind of guessing it's 273. Maybe someone got saved. I don't know. But we know Paul's a believer. We know Luke is with him. And we know this guy from Thessalonica. A Macedonian from Thessalonica is another believer that joins Paul. So look at verse um, Verse 2, so entering the ship to, to, of Adrametrium, we put into sail, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus of Macedonia, a Thessalonican, he was also with us. So Luke is writing this, and Luke's saying, I'm on board. We've got this guy from Thessalonica, and we've got Paul. Now, later on in the same chapter, we find that there are 276 people on board this boat. So I'm assuming that probably out of the rest of them, They've not encountered Christianity. And the best way for people to encounter Christianity is in a real-life interaction with another person. And so ministry takes place in our life. We live in a fallen world. This is my first point. <laughs> and poor choices can bring disaster. This is what brought disaster to these guys. They lived, listened to bad counsel, and they also, we live in a fallen world. And that's when the opportunities come. Sometimes people will make a bad choice, and they'll ask your advice about something. Or maybe you see something that they've done, and it's had some ramifications in their life that didn't go so well. That is your opportunity to be a Christian and to be a light to that person. As a humanist, they tried their own solutions, didn't they? They wanted a comfortable place to winter. That's the human condition. We all want the, the easy route. And so we'll make concessions. We'll make poor, bad choices because of it. 14 through 18, we see that they did everything humanly possible. 
That's the human way of doing things. When people have exhausted every possible means, they lose hope, don't they? As a, as a human being, and you don't have hope, you don't have a God, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ in your life, and everything in your life has gone wrong, that person is in a hopeless situation. And that's when believers can come and give their perspective. They can give an eternal look at life, an eternal view of life. And this is what's happening here. They had done everything in their power. They knew that they couldn't control this storm. They knew that they couldn't look at the stars. They couldn't look at the sun. They couldn't figure out where they were at. They were desperate. They had given up all hope. As a child of God, you always have hope. You know, I, I pray for people right up into their last breath, believing that God can do a miracle. I witness to people, and I pray for lost people up until they're in the grave, and there's no more hope, because with God, all things are possible. These guys on the ship, they don't have that perspective. All they know is that we are going down. But as believers, we have a living God who said this in the book of Jeremiah, I have done all things. I've created the heavens and the earth. Is there anything too difficult for our God? So Paul, what is Paul doing? He is praying and fasting for 14 days because he has hope that God can do something. So we as believers can offer people an alternative. From per, a purely naturalistic perspective, hope would be diminished. And that's what we see here. That the imperfect tense in verse 20 is, is, is ongoing and it's gradual and gradual. And now it's come to this point where it is gone. Well, we can offer an alternative from God's perspective. God is personal. And this is the way we can encourage people. We can offer others hope that they don't have to worry. Anxiety never caused any problem to go away, did it? Paul urges them. So let's look at verse 21. But after long absence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. I don't think he's scolding them. I think he's trying to get their attention. Here's a guy that maybe we should be listening to. Here's a guy who's on board this ship and personal comfort is not his number one priority. This is a guy who's got his priorities right. Let's stay here. Let's don't sacrifice this good harbor just so we can be in a place that fits our fancy and our human comfort. And so he's reminding them, guys, I warned you. I want you to listen to me. I'm not just looking out for number one. I'm looking out for all of you. I, I, I wanted to save us all from this disaster and loss. And now I urge you. This is a strong word. It's only used twice in the entire New Testament. Both times by Paul when he's trying to persuade somebody that God is on your side. And so he's urging them again. He's urging them that God is here alongside of us. The only other time that it's used is in chapter 27 and verse 9. 
That's the only other time. Look at verse 27 and verse 9. Now after much, it spent much time in sailing, and now it was dangerous because the fast was already over. And it's the word here, Paul advised. Now he's advising them again. I think this time they're going to listen to him, aren't they? This time they're saying, okay, this guy's going to urge us. He's going to give us some advice. Let's listen to what he's got to say. First thing that he says, I think we all should take hope in. And that is material things are going to come and go, aren't they? What's the most valuable cargo on this boat? It's the souls of men. And Paul says, I take great comfort in knowing that God is more concerned about the people on board than the cargo that we're carrying. So, you know, as a believer, there's so many times when we can use this as an opportunity to encourage someone. Because people can get discouraged over the loss of property, over personal damage, over their pride, over their loss of job, whatever it is. And as a Christian, we can tell them, those things, they're just temporary. The soul of a man is what really, really matters. He says, everybody on this ship is going to make it through it. We're going to lose the ship, we're going to lose the cargo, but you know what? Every one of those things is replaceable. I remember my first time my dear wife got into an accident. We hadn't been married very long, and we were dirt poor. <laughs> and uh, we had this little, little Honda. And uh, there's a real bad curve right about a mile from our house. And she was to babysit somebody on the other side of this, this bad, busy curve. And she was kind of late, and she looked and didn't see anything. And then she looked that way, and then she pulled out, and a car came around and hit her right in the side. And I came home. The car was gone, and there was a police car in our driveway. We lived in this little little brown trailer in Rustburg, Virginia, and my heart started to pound. And I came in and I saw my wife sitting on the couch. I didn't see our little Toyota and I could care less. She was fine. And she was worried that I was going to scold her because she just told our car <laughs> and it was her fault. And the police officer was, drove her home because he was so shaken up. And I said, we can replace that old beater. <laughs> I, mean, I think we paid $500 for it. So. But my wife was fine. And you get what I'm saying, don't you? You know, when, when you find it, Brother Ron sent me a text on Wednesday night. It was a young girl had been in a bicycle accident and they had to life flight her. And he sent me a text and I was on my bicycle, bicycling home from church. And so she's on my mind. I'm praying for this young girl because I know what it is to be a mom and dad. I mean, I'm a worry ward. I'll just tell you that. You know, Brendan knows that. If he's downtown and he's 15 minutes late, I text him. I said, do I need to come and call? Do I need to look for you? Do I need to find you? You know, if Jordan's gone, I call Kelly. Where's Jordan tonight? You know, I, if all my kids aren't where they're supposed to be, there's got to, you know, I'm going to worry. And so Ron, out of the goodness of his heart, sent me a text and said, she's okay. And that's what we want to know. Our lives okay? And as believers, we can bring this into the discussion. And that's what Paul said. Guys, it's stuff. And what an opportunity to witness. As a Christian, he's got a God-centered worldview. And that's what we need to bring to people. 
Our God is personal. Next, he says, do not fear. As a believer, we don't have to live our lives in fear. Fear grabs a hold of people. It grips their lives. Paul says, I urge you, the only thing that's going to be lost is a ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God. Now, I was reading this in the Greek text this week, and the very first words of this text are, there stood by me this night, and then it's the genitive of God, and then the rest of the clause goes on, to whom I belong, whom I serve, an angelos, an angel. You can do that in Greek. You can't do it in English. What was Luke trying to emphasize? He's not emphasizing angels. We get all been out, all hung up over angels, don't we? Movies, angels, books, angels, and they all sell. We want to all know about angels. But it's not about the angels. It's about God. It's about Jesus Christ. He is the one who's to be glorified. It's God who's doing all of this. And Luke's saying, you know, it's not the angel. It's the God who the angel belongs. It's not you, Paul, but it's the God to whom you belong to. And this is what he's telling these guys. Don't fear. There is no fear in love. When you have a relationship with God, you have been made perfect by love. Fear has torment. And so whoever is fearing hasn't been made perfect in love. You want to cast out all your fear in your life? Perfect love casts out fear. God has a perfect love for you. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. I don't have to fear. Why? Because God loves me perfectly, and he loved me. The rest of that verse goes on to say, way before I ever loved him. So his love, therefore, must be unconditional and not based on my performance. Because he loved me when I wasn't performing, and he loved me before I ever loved him. And that kind of perfect love, it dispels all fears in our life. Paul says, look at the world differently. And he also says, don't fear. As believers, we don't have to live our life in fear. Our relationship to God is based on his unconditional love for us. His love for us is perfect, since fear and love are mutually exclusive we need only to fully comprehend his love for us, confess it, and rest in it. God initiated this sacrificial love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No fear in love. Next thing that Paul says, when I'm offering this alternative to you and I'm looking at a biblical perspective, God is faithful. What kind of God do we serve? We serve a faithful God. When God makes a promise to Abraham, because God could swear by no greater, God swore by himself so that by two immutable things, so that when we flee for refuge to lay on the hope that is before us, we have what? We have strong consolation. God is faithful to his promises. And this is what Paul says to this group of men. God is faithful. God to whom? Which God is he talking about? Let's look at this verse. We'll look at the, is, I mean, this verse will preach an hour and a half, won't it? 
said, go ahead, Patrick. The God that I serve and the God to whom I belong. You belong to God. He is your father. He owns you. He purchased you. You are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. The God to whom I belong. Paul never saw himself as the prisoner of Rome, did he? He always called himself the prisoner of the Lord. That's the one who I belong to. He's the one who's going to take care of me. So Paul says, this is the God that I belong to. I was reading through the Psalms this week, and I came across this Psalm, and I thought, this fits perfectly for what Paul is saying. I belong to God, and I believe God that's going to be just as he told me. What did Paul tell them that he was assured of? He was assured that he was going to get to Caesar, right? Because God had already told him that. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. Acts 23, 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Don't you know that that was in the back of Paul's mind? Probably not the back of his mind. That was probably in the forefront of his mind. When the storm is blowing, these guys are trying to lighten the boat. All he had to say is, guys, I already know we're going to get there. I know this is what my, my God has promised me, and this is what God has promised me and you. I'm not going to have any angelic visions, and I'm not going to have any nighttime dreams that God's going to tell me what's going to happen, but I do have this promise in Psalm 138 and verse 8, and so do you this morning. This promise is yours. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. That's Bible. That is God's word to you. God will perfect that which concerns you. The Hebrew word perfect, it's the Hebrew word that means complete, without any variation, without any fractures, without any deviation. It's a whole number, the idea. Perfect. He will complete it. He's going to do everything that concerns you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. He has promised me that he will never leave me nor forsake me. God will perfect that which concerns to you. Here's another promise for you this morning from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. God is faithful who began a good work in you to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said, I know that God began something in me. Way before I ever got arrested, when I wanted to go to Jerusalem, I knew that somehow I was going to get to the city of Rome. Paul knew that God was going to perfect that which concerned him. And you have that same promise this morning. I don't know what your spiritual gifting is, or what, what God has called you to do, but if God has given you a ministry and God has given you a desire in your heart to do something for his kingdom, God will perfect that which concerns you and he will bring it to completion in your life. God stands by us. 
the God, the angel whom I belong. Now he's also going to do what he said to me. I believe that. But also he said he stood by me. We have this promise in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, quoted from the Psalms as well. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can this storm do to me? It can't do anything to me. Take heart, because God also answers our prayers. Look what this passage goes on to say. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted. God hears and answers prayer. We have a personal God. We have a faithful God. We have a God that answers prayer. We have a God who stands by us. We have a God to whom we belong. And so Paul is offering this the alternative perspective to these guys in the storm. Now, as we close this, I just want you to look at how his testimony and his example influenced the souls that were on the ship. When our convictions are seen and when we let our light shine, several things happen. Paul admonished them, not to rebuke them, but to get their attention. Paul was secure in his relationship with God. That's what we need to get across to people. Paul pointed people to God when he needed to light, let his light shine. We gain their trust by example. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. Now, they begin to, to, to draw close to land, and they're fearing that they're going to hit land, so they begin to sound what the depth of the water is, and they put out their ships, but they, they think that... that um, some of the guys are going to, to, to run aground, and so the sailors were seeking to escape, verse 30. And when they had let down the skiff, verse 30, and with the pretense of putting out the anchors of the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the sailors, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall off. Now you're wondering, what's so significant about that? Paul had won their respect, hadn't he? He'd been in the storm with them. He rode it out with them. He fasted for 14 days with them. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He encouraged them to take some food. This guy had won their trust. And that's the way ministry really takes place. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time of investing in people's lives, living out your Christian faith in front of them in the midst of storms, and then you begin to gain their trust, and they start coming to you for advice. It will happen. Believe me. Trust me. When you live your Christian life in front of unbelievers and they watch you go through storms with them, they will come to you. There was a lady in Ireland that my wife would walk with every single night and she would pray and pray and pray that she could witness to this lady. And she would often just share stories of her childhood and just hoping that somehow that she would ask her a question and she could start to witnessing. It just seemed to never happen. 
But this lady watched her life and watched her life. And she had a younger brother that got on a ferry to go to Wales. And he was going through deep depression and and God used this for us to, to minister Jesus to this family, but he ended up, he, he took his life. And she didn't run to her bishop. She didn't run to her priest. She came next door and with an open heart said, Tracy, tell me about your God. Tracy had another neighbor dying of cancer. And Tracy would go every single day and she would clean this lady's house, clean her toilets. She would fix meals for the husband and mix, mix meals for her son. And one day Tracy was up there and she grabbed her by the hand. She says, Tracy, I've got to know about your Christ. And Tracy came running home and, and she had this little gospel track. It was good news, bad news. We've got the same ones here at the church. And she sat down with that good news, bad news track and that lady prayed that little prayer, and she carried it with her to hospice. She carried it with her everywhere, and everyone that would come in the room, Anne would read that track with them and tell them what Jesus did. Why? God had finally given that opportunity because the trust had been gained. And they have gained, Paul had gained their trust. And when he says, you guys had better stay in the ship, they said, you know what? This guy walks with God. This guy prays for us. This guy cares about us. Let's cut these ropes off him. Let's let this thing fall in the ocean. I believe you, Paul. I trust you. So I think that's why Luke puts this in this for us. Verse 35. Verse 35. Paul prayed in the presence of every one of them. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And they broke it and they began to eat. That seems pretty insignificant, doesn't it? But so many times you might be out in public. And all it takes for you to do at a restaurant for somebody to ask you about your faith is to bow your head before you eat and give thanks to God before other people. I know a friend of mine, every time he goes into a restaurant, the waitress will come over and bring him the food. And he'll say, you know what, we're going to pray God's blessing on this food in a few minutes. Is there anything that we can pray for you? And that waitress will often share something that's on their heart. And they'll be overwhelmed because there has been something pressing on them. And by the providence of God, God prompted that person to ask that question. And it often opens up into a witnessing opportunity. Or someone who's out of fellowship with God who's a believer and said, you know, I really needed this today. Or maybe it's another Christian and they just rejoice around that meal. God does those things. And yesterday, I was out with the track team and after the whole meet was over, I looked across the table from me and one of the track coaches had her head bowed and praying. And we looked up and we were both praying together. And we were sitting around a table with unbelievers. I got back from the trip last night. It was about 9.30. I was standing in the parking lot of the high school. 
the old principal pulls up and the four coaches of are standing around. And we all get sort of chewing the fat. And then he says, Patrick, are you still keeping the faith? Now, I didn't know that these guys were kind of watching me down there at the track meet. And the other coach said, Patrick, he says, I've never seen anybody ever do what you did. I said, what was that? He says, we were sitting under the tent, hundreds of people walking around. And you opened up your scriptures, is what he called it. And you sat there in the tent reading. Well, I didn't think anybody was watching, but people are watching us and their opportunities to witness and people to share our life. And Paul's ministry isn't always in the courtroom. It's not always in the synagogue. And yours always isn't in a church assembly. Your ministry happens in everyday life, in the circumstances that you live around in a fallen world. God wants you to offer people an alternative way of viewing life and then offer them an example to follow. And that's what the Apostle Paul had done. His, his example was so powerful that the Roman centurion was willing to put his neck on the line for the Apostle Paul. When that ship got wrecked, if a prisoner escaped, you would die in place of that prisoner. The soldiers said, we're not going to risk that. Let's kill all the prisoners right now. And the centurion says, nothing doing. I'm going to save the life of the Apostle Paul. I just wonder if old Julius, who was in custody of Paul, if we won't meet him in heaven one day because he was strapped to the old Apostle Paul. And would to God, wouldn't that be wonderful if people that you rub shoulders with every day through the circumstances of life and you living differently and offering people an alternative way and living an example before them, if we won't see some of those folks in heaven one day. So that's kind of the way ministry happens, isn't it? When we're acting and living like the salt of the earth, we become a preserving influence on all those around us. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's my prayer for us corporately as a church body that we would be the salt of Harrisville, of North Ogden, of Plain City, of Pleasant View, that this church would be salt, that people would know about this church and our reputation would begin to spread. God, as we do summer ministry and try to get involved in the lives of this community around us, God, I pray that we would be salt to those who desperately need it. And Father, I pray for us as individuals when we leave today, God, that we would realize that ministry isn't something that happens for two hours on Sunday morning at church. It's something that I live out daily in the midst of the circumstances in a fallen, sinful, broken world that I can offer people an alternative way of looking at life. And my example can influence people. God, we pray this because we want to see people brought into your kingdom through the Savior. And so we pray this for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen.